Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Full Court Press has the latest news and opinions from men's and women's college basketball. Our hosts are John Fanta, who calls games all around the country for Fox Sports and others, and Kim Adams, an analyst for Fox and ESPN, and a former D1 baller who never saw a three-point opportunity she didn't like. If you don't believe me, check her Twitter page. Take it away, guys. Welcome to Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams, everybody, on this Wednesday, April 29, 2020. I'm John Fanta. Kim is out this week. We've got a big show for you, though. Fran Fraschilla of ESPN is going to join us. Fran does a great job on their college basketball coverage as an analyst, and he also is an analyst for the NBA draft, focusing on international talent. So if you're looking for that international name or two to watch for the NBA draft this summer or early fall, whenever the draft is, we got into that as well, you're going to learn about some of those names here. And you're going to learn about a coach that you might not know a lot about that is really, really good with X's and O's. I asked Fran to take us into the film room if he had to pick three coaches in college hoops to watch film of while he's quarantining. Who are the three? You're going to be fascinated to hear one answer and then another, a coach of a blue blood who doesn't let on that he's a great X's and O's guy and kind of has a secret to his sauce. Elsewhere in college basketball right now, we know the one-time transfer rule. It's in the news every week, sometimes every day it seems like. Uh, These things are still very fluid. But the biggest news early Wednesday morning is the NCAA announcing that they are recommending that student-athletes can begin to benefit from their name, image, and likeness in a system that needs to be hashed out and needs to be developed. But the NCAA took a step forward. Big East Commissioner Val Ackerman, Ohio State President Michael Drake, Ohio State AD Gene Smith, and NCAA President Mark Emmer jumping on the phone Wednesday morning talking with the media about the importance of student-athletes getting that opportunity that we've been talking about for years. It's been the great debate. Will they benefit off their name, image, and likeness, giving the student-athletes the same opportunity that a regular student has on a campus? And this committee came out right away and said that the Board of Governors— When they presented this information to the NCAA top board, the board unanimously wants to put this into effect. There are two questions lingering. There's many questions, but there's two that are lingering that are of the utmost importance with this. Number one, there's a difference between schools being involved and schools assisting these student-athletes with these types of deals. So what does the enforcement look like? With this, because inevitably a student athlete is going to have a venture or a campaign with some sort of company, and there still has to be a level of school awareness because 
whatever campaign that they sign on with, whatever company that they sign to do an endorsement deal with, if it's on social media, it's got to still align with an institution's beliefs uh, and with what they stand for. So the, the big question is, how does this get enforced? And the answer from this working group was, they really don't know right now. These types of things have to be worked out. And then the second big takeaway that I had from the media conference call was Congress and the issue of getting this to Washington to have an alignment between the NCAA and Congress that keeps the NCAA from getting into several lawsuits because in the past when they've made changes, it's resulted in them getting backfired on and resulting in different lawsuits because there's such a gray area with all of this. Gray area is how I would describe this at the moment, but the point is the NCAA is finally acknowledging the fact that they need to get name, image, and likeness guidelines in place to allow student-athletes this opportunity. How this gets enforced and whether or not Congress is part of this, while they sounded optimistic, we're in some unprecedented times in our country right now. Who knows where this falls on the ladder? The point is, these conversations are beginning to happen, and that's a step in the right direction. We've got Fran Frischilla of ESPN talking about name, image, and likeness, talking about the transfer rule. You're going to be really intrigued to hear his response to that one. And talking about all different kinds of storylines in college basketball, from the Big 12 to the Pac-12, and we even head to the Big East this week. He was a college basketball coach for a decade at Manhattan, St. John's in New Mexico. Now he calls the worldwide leader ESPN his home as a college basketball color commentator. It's Fran Frischilla who joins us on Full Core Press. And Fran, hope that you and your family are doing well. Let's get into the state of college basketball. And as a coach and now an analyst, this has been an interesting couple of weeks in the sports and college athletics in general. But the biggest topic right now that's being discussed is the NBA G League creating a system for high school prospects to take that year in the G League as opposed to going to college, developing, and then heading to the NBA. Dacia Nix, the five-star point guard who was going to head to UCLA, decommits Fran. Now he's heading to the G League. He joins Jalen Green, Isaiah Todd. And all I'm reading is this debate all of a sudden that, okay, college basketball, as we know it, is suffering some sort of death. What's your reaction to any of those takes? Well, I think that's an overreaction. We've seen this before with, uh, you know, when the, when the when high school kids could go right to the NBA. Uh, Kevin Garnett went to the NBA instead of going to Duke or, or uh, Michigan State. Uh, you know, Kobe Bryant went to the NBA. Uh, that didn't hurt college basketball. I, I don't think those individual players will hurt specifically, but I do think it does. Uh, I think it makes the NCAA think more quickly about getting the, the NIL, the uh, name, image, and, and, uh, and uh, likeness issue behind them where elite players, uh, guys like Jalen Green, could profit somewhat off of their name, image, and likeness. I think that's on the way to happening. It may only be for a small handful of players that could really benefit from that, but the idea that the G League will, um, you know, is in direct competition with college basketball, that still remains to be seen. If 
it's an interesting experiment the G League is, is taking part in because they have pretty much said that the three kids they've signed so far are going to be draft picks, first-round picks, high picks. If, in fact, all any one of those three or two of those three turn out not to be as good as advertised, I think it would it would kind of definitely be an issue for the G League. But um, I get why they're doing it. I was a little surprised they did it with Dacian Nix because he'd already committed to a school. To my way of thinking, it's the first time the G League has gone out. And uh, unlike what they did with Baisley or – I, um, well, I take that back. Isaiah Todd was going to Michigan, so I guess I can rule that out. So they are going after college kids. But in the long run, I don't think it's going to have a huge effect on college basketball. The name, image, and likeness, the working group for the NCAA announced on Wednesday morning the recommendations that they've made to the Board of Governors. Now it'll be broken up into Division One, Two, and Three over the next six months. And they said that the plan is in place to have a potential January vote to get some of these things into effect for 2021-22. Friend, I, I look at this situation, and in the sport of college basketball, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the fact that there have been loopholes. There have been loopholes created. There has been cheating in the sport. It's it's a thing. It's out there. Yeah. Yep. What do you what do you see these actual regulations changing with that, if anything? Well, I don't know that it's going to change much. Uh, it, it in the sense that there has always been cheating. There was always a percentage of schools. Maybe it's not as large as people think. Maybe it's more uh, that have had have broken the rules, uh, that have created an environment that uh, that the, they get a 10 or 15 yard head start and a 100 yard dash. Um, I, I coached in uh, for college basketball for 23 years. I saw it when I was coaching. I see it today. At least I think I see it. Can't be sure, but I think I see it. And certainly the FBI investigation showed that it is without a doubt going on in the old days, we didn't really know how it was getting done. Honestly, coaches who didn't cheat would ask each other, how do you think they do it? And so now the FBI uh, investigation uncovered part of how schools have done it. This NIL thing will be interesting because I think what's going to have to happen. I, I think it's a necessary move um, because there's been so much of a push from people in and around college basketball to do something, to create an environment where the kids are rewarded maybe with a little bit more than just a scholarship, room board, tuition, books. Oh, by the way, about $1,000 a month, plus travel, plus medical, plus equipment, uh, plus charter flights, plus, uh, you know, two really good meals a day. So I understand that. I'm not necessarily in favor of the NIL, but I think what's going to happen is you're going to see outside marketing groups uh, try to create opportunities for the elite players to get involved. My question is, you can't tell me that Nick Saban's not going to have a marketing deal uh, involving NIL set up for every one of his 85 scholarship players. It just makes too much sense that people, people like Nick Saban, who know how to use the rules in their favor, will, will do this. So I'm anxious to see how it gets policed, because I do think, just like anything else we've seen in college basketball through the years, there can be people that take advantage of what the actual rules are. Speaking of policing, it's also out there right now that the NCAA is looking at eliminating the sit-out transfer rule and allowing one-time transfers for you to be immediately eligible if you transfer from school to school. 
Right now, uh, it is becoming an annual phrase in the sport of college basketball that transfers are at an all-time high. It, it keeps increasing yeah. by the year. Uh, and the thought is, okay, if they're eligible immediately, we're going to get an even more wild, wild west. And you could go from what is 700, 800 right now to over 1,000 and so on. What's your thought process with this potential legislation to eliminate that waiver process and allow anybody to be immediately eligible? You know, John, I used to tell my college coaching friends, even after I left, that the number one job description of a college basketball coach is crisis management coordinator because you have to deal with all sorts of things on and off the court and handle adversity. That's why you're paid. But I've amended that. I think the number one job description of a college coach now is roster management supervisor. And because of the plethora of transfers, of graduate transfers, of international players, of JUCO players, uh, and, and given that kids are transferring out of your school and into your school, you do have to manage your roster year by year now. You can no longer build a program uh very few let's put it this way very few schools can build a quote-unquote program they have to build a team and a roster year by year now because of the transfers i think the rule that's going to eventually be passed which which could be could be this year or for next season <clears throat> eliminate the sit out year i think is a stupid rule um i get that i get uh i get that the average student can leave anytime he wants to go to another school I get that non-revenue sports uh, athletes can leave and be eligible somewhere else. But I think if, if it were me, I would simply say, I would, I would make it this clear. If you are a graduate transfer, you're, you're, you're free to transfer anywhere and be eligible immediately. If you go to a school and your coach leaves or has been fired, you get a chance to transfer one time and be eligible immediately. But if you decide that you want to transfer because you picked the school and you're unhappy with the school, I think that you ought to have to sit out a year. Number one, sitting out is actually a benefit to most student athletes. Gives them a chance to acclimate to a new environment, gives them a chance to grow academically and also improve athletically. So I'm not in favor of it. It is coming. It will be passed. And so coaches have to recruit more transfers than they do high school guys because unless you're getting an elite athlete at the high school level, you're better off having an older team with a, a team full of transfers than picking off some high school kid who was top 150 and trying to wait for him to develop. Experience wins in college basketball. We've seen it recently with Virginia, Villanova. Seniors win in March. There's no question about it. Fran Fraschilla, our guest here on Full Court Press. Fran, you do a lot of Big 12 games on ESPN, and I think that this is an interesting coaching storyline within the sport. What Scott Drew has done with Baylor, and I was in a yep. couple of press rooms with you throughout the season, and I remember you talking to people about what Scott Drew has done to turn his reputation, to turn a program around in a lot of ways. And I don't think everybody realizes it because – they think Scott Drew still, and sometimes people think, okay, well, he he was accused, he was you know circled around cheating. Uh, how yeah. would you how would you hold Scott Drew in 2020 as we stand today? Well, I think I first of all, I think the coaching community has embraced the fact that he's impre improved as a coach 
dramatically every year. I mean, you would expect anybody to do something 17 straight years uh, to get better at it. And he has, there's no question about it. I also think he's adjusted his coaching philosophy when it comes to recruiting because, um, well, first of all, let's, let's go back in time. He took over one of the worst situations ever in division one basketball, right. one of the worst, worst, uh, you know, NCAA violations, a murder inside the program. That's been well-documented. Um, he's a, he's a take no for an answer guy. So he was a relentless recruiter early on. It paid off. They got good players. He may have rubbed people the wrong way. Uh, and if he did, it was partly because Baylor was no longer two wins in the big 12, like it had been for many years, what he's done now. And it's not unlike what Virginia does or what Villanova does and a few other programs um, is he builds for the long term and he builds, you know, with upperclassmen. Now, in his case, they not only take transfers, they redshirt high school players, which is almost unheard of nowadays in this era of instant gratification. But he convinces some kids to, to redshirt. Um, and he gets kids who've been, for the most part, who've been at a high, a, a mid-major level playing really well. And when they do transfer, they transfer to a place where they get a chance to play in a, in a great league. So he's done a fabulous job in that regard. He's got three more guys sitting out this year, all going to help him. He's got three good recruits coming in top 20 recruiting class. And I think the job he's done has been remarkable. And I think that everybody in the big 12 knows it. And quite frankly, I think the way we cover the big 12 on ESPN, I think it's pretty clear now that college basketball fans have a greater appreciation for what he's done than probably ever before. Has Baylor caught Kansas, and can they sustain this? I think on the court at the current, if you say going into next year, have they caught them? Absolutely. Um, But Kansas is Kansas. They're like Kentucky. They're like Duke, Carolina. They're a blue blood. So they may have caught them in the the short term, but it's really, really hard to catch Kansas over a a length of time. Now, having said that, John – with what Kansas is going through with an ongoing NCAA investigation, you know, I'll reserve judgment on whether they've caught them until after the NCAA hands down any, any, if, if any, any penalty. So we'll see, but without a doubt, especially going into next season, I think you're talking about, you know, one of the top five teams in the country. And I do think you could say that right now where their program is, they're one of the top 20 basketball programs in the country and probably have been for the last 10 years. Heading into next year, there's still a lot to be decided with NBA draft and transfer still on the table. The program that you like the most heading into next year and why? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I'm a little partial. I'll say that, uh, and I'll, uh, you know, uh, I'm a little partial to Villanova. Uh, you know, and I've got a, I've got a, you know, full disclosure. My son is a member of the staff there, but having said that, Having said that, um, what I love about Villanova is the continuity. Uh, the coach is heading to the Hall of Fame, and there's certainly been continuity since he took over. Um, they have an excellent team coming back. They have guys that have sat out. They're going to be key parts of that team. Uh, I assume they'll lose Sadiq Bey, but that's not a complete given. But the likelihood is that he that he will leave for the NBA, and they still have a very good team. I just like the uh, – I, much like Virginia, I like the vibe around the program. Uh, there's a sense that these kids really do go to class. 
that they really do care about getting an education. But because they play high-level basketball, if your time to leave for the NBA is after two years, sayonara, you're gone. If you're Mikel, if you're Mikel Bridges, Dante DiVincenzo, and this year probably Sadiq Bey, so long because we got the next guy coming right behind him. And I, I think they are one of the very few programs in the country uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that don't just build a roster for the next season, but can build a program. Very hard to sustain. I'll be curious how long Jay Wright can do that. Let's stay in the Big East. We actually got some questions from different listeners, fans out there that watch you throughout the season. Del Griffith asks, what do you think of UConn returning to the conference? That would have been a team I would have said, hey, let's keep an eye on these guys because, uh, number one, it's incredible for the league. Uh, it's incredible for the, for every other team in that league, believe it or not, even though you're adding a, a program that is on the rise. Um, and it's incredible for UConn and their fan base. It's This is a complete win all the way around. Uh, Danny Hurley has recruited well. He's got good young players in the program. And uh, I'm excited for UConn's future. I'm excited to see them back at the Big East Tournament. Uh, I know how exciting the Big East Tournament has been. Uh, since the you know the the reformation of the league, but I think UConn coming back in with the great history and tradition of Big East basketball is an absolute grand slam home run. Jimmy asks, "What's the favorite game of yours that you were in attendance for during the 2019-20 season?" I thought about that earlier. I got to tell you, um, it's two schools I've already talked about. I thought the most <laughs> underrated game of the season in college basketball, at least one of the top three or four or five, was the Myrtle Beach final between Baylor and Villanova. Wow. That game, that was an incredible basketball game, a lot of shot making and uh, exciting. And it's really interesting about that game because, you know, Baylor, Baylor's team defense was one of the best in college basketball this year. We told the story in the Big 12 all year. They played 98% man-to-man this year. The, the Villanova game was the only game I can remember where they actually played more than 10 possessions a zone in the second half, and it was the only thing that slowed Villanova down in that game. It was a great game and a really good win by Baylor. And because it was in a Coastal Carolina, sort of a big high school gym, I hate to say that, but it was. I'm not sure how many people really appreciated how good a level of the game it was. But obviously, three months and four months later, we saw how both teams kind of came on and were really two of the better 10 or 12 teams in college basketball. It's amazing. You wouldn't think that a zone would be the thing that slows Villanova down, yes. a team that can beat you from the perimeter. But Baylor's length was incredible all season. They were. And it's really interesting, John, that you said that because you would normally think of a Villanova team with the way they shoot it and the way Jay Wright coaches that that would not be an issue. But sometimes when you're on fire, it's like hitting fastball. You could be a curveball hitter, but if you've been hitting fastballs the last few games and all of a sudden you see a curveball and you haven't seen very many because people don't think or they do think you can hit it, all of a sudden the curveball gives you a little trouble because you're not expecting it. And that's how the zone was that night, to your point. Looking around next season, the momentum right now out west for Arizona State is something. They've already made some big uh, recruiting news. They've, they've trended in the right direction on that circuit. 
And you just get the sense that Bobby Hurley has that program on a trajectory that they haven't seen in, in quite some time. What do you make of the Sun Devils' potential? Well, I love what they're doing. Um, assuming everybody comes back, <clears throat> you know, they're going to start off with a terrific guard in Remy Martin. Alonzo Verge, a Juco transfer, was a, a revelation this year. He had a great season. That'll be, that'll be a really strong backcourt. I assume Romello White will be back, uh, Kamani Lawrence. They've got some really good recruits coming in, led by Josh Christopher. Um, you know, Sun Devil basketball has always been an enigma, uh, and I think partly because, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to go to a basketball game in January and February when you're in Phoenix and it's 75 degrees. But Wells Fargo has started to rock. I've been out there in the last couple of years, and they really have a great home court advantage. So I'm excited for Bobby. I watched him grow up in Jersey City. I know his dad well. I know Danny well. And uh, given that Arizona is going through their NCAA situation, and given that they're going to lose three first-round picks to the NBA, all freshmen, I didn't think I'd see a day where Arizona State would overtake Arizona, at least in the near future. But I think that day is upon us. How about that? That's, I mean, that's big time in the sport because if you ask any Arizona fan, they would say that's unheard of. They would never, they consider right. that an insult, but that's the way that things are trending. Well, let's turn Very to another so. area, another area of high expertise for you, uh, the NBA draft. You do such a great yep. job with the international prospects, uh, and there's 42 that have declared on top of the 163. Um, so putting it at 205, which is a little bit lower than what we saw in 2019 and 2018. I'm intrigued first, internationally, a name or two that people need to be aware of right now. Absolutely. Well, the first one would be Killian Hayes out of France, uh, six foot five, 18, soon to be 19 year old point guard. His father, Deron Hayes, was a star at Penn State in the late 80s and early 90s and then played 20-plus years in Europe, if you can imagine that. Um, so Killian's a partly American. He spends his summers when he's not playing for the French national junior team in Lakeland, Florida, where his dad now resides, but his mom's French. Uh, tremendous young talent, will be a top 15 pick, very left-hand dominant point guard and very much a, uh, a potentially very good NBA guard. The other name, uh, first time Israel is going to see a first-round pick in the lottery, and that would be a six-foot-nine, 19-year-old Denny Avdia, who is a versatile all-around forward, can play small forward, can play big forward, can handle the ball. Uh, I don't project him to be an all-star. I uh, project him to be a solid NBA player in time. I would expect Denny to go in the top 10. I think Killian could also go in the top 10. Who do you think is the most NBA ready? Avdia or two players that people haven't seen as well, friend? RJ Hampton, LaMelo Ball. Good question. Good question. I, I would think you could put LaMelo Ball on the court today with the ball in his hands and he would not embarrass himself. I think he's got the potential to be a very good playmaker in the NBA. I think both Denny and RJ are what I would call projects. And by that, I mean, they're certainly worthy of going, you know, in the top 15 in the draft. But as we see year in and year out, John, it's really hard unless you're a Zion Williamson type or, a, you know, John Morant or a Trey Young. It's very hard for a rookie to come into the league and have any kind of impact. 
And quite frankly, more often than not, rookies have no effect on a team's ability to win games. I think um, all three of those kids will play in the league. I think LaMelo will have the biggest impact early. But I think even LaMelo doesn't have a chance to impact a bad team's chances to win right away. I'm going to have you go into your crystal ball here because you combine the experience of having been a coach. And I know the game's certainly changing rapidly right now with the transfer rule and with the NBA draft being in a state of uncertainty just with the calendar. But focusing on the draft, Fran, at surface level, this is a, an issue because you're looking at a timeline that is potentially getting pushed back. You're looking at yeah. some players who have declared to test the waters and who could end up likely coming back. We don't have any knowledge of, of what an evaluatory period could look like if there is one. I'm just wondering, I, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you're a coach right now in this position, you, you want what's best for your player, but there is that mix of not knowing in terms of evaluating yeah. and, and whether you want to come back and potentially get better for the year. If, if you were running the NBA in college basketball, how would you go about this process, which is so uncertain? Well, first of all, John, let's take the college coach. As I said earlier, it doesn't matter when the NBA extends their withdrawal deadline. The simple fact is with transfers, with early entries, you know, and all the other stuff going on, potential recruits not coming to your school but going to the G League, you're really a, a, you're managing your roster and you're doing it 12 months a year now and particularly this time of year if you have one or maybe more players in an early entry situation. You have to manage for both them coming back and not coming back. And if they don't come back, it's going to obviously hit your program hard, but you have to just have some alternatives in place. From an NBA standpoint, and I was on a call this morning with an NBA team just discussing the draft, there's no question that I think in my mind that there will not be a draft until there is a definitive end to the NBA season. And I do think it's on the back burner right now because I think the NBA league office and the teams are trying to figure out whether they can complete the season when they've made that decision. Then I think you're going to see a turn towards the draft and it's going to be very interesting because it's very possible that we'll have a draft and not have a combine in Chicago, not have individual team workouts. And so what NBA teams are doing right now is they're, rel they're relying on two things, videotape and their phones. Uh, they're watching as much tape as possible. Even the coaching staffs of NBA teams for the first time have more time to delve into prospects. And they're on the phone with all of their friends in college basketball trying to figure out what kind of kids are we drafting if we take a Sadiq Bay if we draft a Miles Powell, if we, you know, if we take a Cole Anthony, they're trying to do detective work because of the investment involved in a first-round pick. I love following you on Twitter, at Fran Fraschilla. You have had some film breakdown recently. You've broken down the game a little bit. You've answered fan questions. It's, a, it's great to follow if you're a college hoops junkie. You get three coaches to watch on tape for as much footage yeah. as you'd like. Yep. Who runs the best X's and O's? Who are you watching on tape if you've only got to pick three? Oh, that's a good question. You know, um, 
I thought you were going to ask me three coaches I'd want to be on an island with during this coronavirus <laughs> talk basketball. It's a different yeah, answer. The, yeah. Uh, well, I got to tell you, I got a lot of I got a lot of respect for Greg McDermott um, at, at at Creighton. I think Craig I think Craig is an offensive uh, mastermind. I really do. Greg, I said I think I said Craig for a second, but no, I think Greg McDermott is an offensive mastermind. I really do. I think um, he sees offense in a, at an elite level, even beyond what I think most good coaches see it. I think Bill Self's a great X and O guy who does not want you to know he is. He takes his team's <laughs> talent. Yeah, he takes his team's talent every season and figures out who are his two best offensive players, and the whole offense is is geared to both of those guys. And then among many many good choices, um, I would probably say that and he didn't coach this year, but he's going to coach again this coming year. Joe Scott at Air Force. I wow. think Chris Mooney, Joe Scott, the guys that run the Princeton offense, um, they were uh, Coach Carrillo was ahead of his time. So much of the offense you see in college in the NBA right now, including what, you know, the way uh, Nikola Jokic plays for the Nuggets, it's really all Princeton inspired. And it's, uh, it's a unique system that we've talked about for many years, but that would be another, you know, if you couldn't give me Joe Scott, I'll take Chris Mooney or anybody who's run Coach Carrillo's system, because I think there's some genius in that offense. Joe Scott of Air Force. I'm going to remember that name. I'm going to have to do some digging on that one. I would have asked you the island question, but Bob Huggins always wins. <laughs> what, say that, what was that, John? I said I would have asked you the yeah. island question, but Bob yeah. Huggins always wins. I keep asking coaches the same question about if they had to quarantine with three people, and Huggy Bear is always at the top of their list. There's no way I could – listen, Bob is one of my closest friends, but I am a teetotaler. There is no way I could be on an island with Bob Huggins without <laughs> starting to drink more than I ever have. So, uh, he, But he's a classic, and he's a great coach, and he's a great friend. But I, I think if you're going to be on an island with Bob, you better have an unlimited supply of uh, – uh, you know, you better, have a, you better have somebody flying in uh, kegs of beer at least weekly. He wouldn't settle for anything less. And every time – I have you on or talk with you. I come away learning something. Today I learned about Joe Scott and uh, what he knows about the game and, and what he presents X's nose-wise. Fran Fraschilla, great ESPN analyst. Follow him at Fran Fraschilla on Twitter. Thanks for joining us, Fran, and hope you and your family stay well. Thank you, John. Likewise here. And I'll, uh, sooner or later I will see you near a basketball <laughs> court, hopefully soon. Thanks again to Fran Frischilla for joining us at Fran, F-R-A-S-C-H-I-L-L-A. There's a test of the spelling during this quarantine. Got to make sure I'm up on that. So you can follow him on Twitter at Fran Frischilla. He has some great, great stuff all throughout the season and even in the offseason. Always impressed with the insights he brings to the game. You think about the NBA draft. This is not what we saw last year with the hype around Zion Williamson, R.J. Barrett going to the Knicks, just with everything that that entailed. Having said this, you look at this draft class, and I'm intrigued by a couple of the names at the top of the board that we saw in sample sizes have the type of potential to do something in the NBA. And what's even more intriguing, Anthony Edwards of Georgia... Obi Toppin of Dayton, those aren't schools that we typically put with high-level draft picks. 
But that's what we're looking at with those two. And I'm fascinated to see what Obi Toppin does at the NBA level. He's six foot nine. He fits the bill of an NBA type player. Uh, I'm interested to see how it translates. All that said, there's the great unknown, right? There's the great unknown of what LaMelo Ball is going to bring to the table. And it might be unfair to him because every evaluatory thing with LaMelo speaks to how talented he is, speaks to how skilled he is. Yet, when you have the Lonzo drama that is mostly created by LaVar, the common sports fan on draft night is going to say, I'm not signing up for that you-know-what. I'm not signing up for that type of drama. I'm not signing up for everything that gets accompanied with the Ball family. Uh, for, by all accounts, though, folks, LaMelo Ball is the best of the Balls and is going to change a franchise. It's just, where is he going to get picked? What type of position is he going to be in upon getting drafted? But that is a fascinating storyline heading into this NBA draft. And in terms of evaluating players, you know, if you're a player right now that's testing the waters, I don't know I don't know where you're heading on that boat. That boat has no direction right now. That boat is in neutral. And that's nothing against the players. It's a reality of their situation. Circles. We hear every player talk about how they have a circle. That circle led that player to declaring for the NBA draft in the first place and testing the waters. What I would say about college basketball is, for some of these players, I would hope that there's some sort of evaluatory feedback that they can get based on something that they can do from now until whenever the draft is. You might not be able to hold a combine, But if we're going to start to hold sporting events in June uh, with no fans, then I think there has to be some sort of a way where you can have an evaluatory period, a couple of days, where a player can showcase his skills. I think it's vital to the process. Or else you're going to have a player that gets informed of their status and not only are you going to have a team potentially taking a chance on a player that all they have is the scout info that they've received from the scouts that attend college games, but you also could have um, a player, for better or worse, leave college, head to the NBA, and potentially be set back in some way, shape, or form. I, I think that's the last thing you want. You want to have the draft process still get preserved because that's what both a player and an organization and for that matter, a university that could have that player come back, raise his stock to the next level, show the beauty of both sides of college and pro, you want to have that get preserved in some way, shape, or form. And I think that's what the NBA, that's why they have it on the back burner, because the first thing is you've got to determine if you're going to have the rest of your NBA season. You're not going to hold a draft during your postseason. You've got to have some closure on the season in order to go forward with that. Interested to see when we get some updated timelines that can provide some college programs and some NBA organizations, as well as the players and their families themselves, some clarity on what exactly they can do. I think it's a necessity uh, at some point here soon. Yes, the NBA season is in great jeopardy, but you also want to be able 
to determine if a student athlete is well-informed to make that decision of going pro or coming back for one final year. Another episode of Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is in the books. Thanks again to Fran Fraschilla for spending some time with us. Thanks also to our producer Mike Lieber as well as Bruce Bernstein for all of their help. Ben Wolfen edits the show every week and we always appreciate his contributions. You can check out Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Aaron Berlin and Otto Strong. That drops each Wednesday. Each Thursday, Monica McNutt drops by with buckets, boards, and blocks. Every Friday, it's the Pure Hoops podcast with B.J. Armstrong and Eric Newman. The Mike Wise Show drops each Monday. And Kim and I will be back every Tuesday, most every Tuesday, with Full Court Press. You can check out all of our other shows. We're still in full force here with Pure Hoops Media during this time to provide you a resort. And we hope that all your families, all your friends are safe and healthy at this time. Thanks again to everybody on the front lines. You are our heroes during this time. Hope everybody is safe out there. Enjoy your weekend. We will see you next week on Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.